Father, we do look forward to the day when you give the order to your son, go, go, it's time. We look forward to that. We're waiting, we're expecting, we're longing for that day. And so we, with John in the book of Revelation, cry, come, even so, come. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to the 12th chapter of Luke's Gospel. 12th chapter. We are right in the middle of this book. It's been an amazing book. Uh, we're right in the, in the center of his uh, gospel proclamation. And so I want to take just a few moments and set the context a bit, especially if you haven't been with us for the last couple weeks, so that you can kind of see the flow of what's happening here uh, in this text. This is the beauty of expositional preaching where you go verse by verse through a book of the Bible because you will begin to see a certain progression that's missed if you just jump from one portion to another. And so I want you to see this progression because it's important that you understand the logical connection that Luke's making to what comes before and to what he's speaking now. So if you have your Bibles open, I want you to glance back to in chapter 12 up to verse 13. There in verse 13, you'll recall that Jesus was interrupted by a man wishing for Jesus to make a judgment about an estate dispute. And instead of ruling on that case, Jesus went to what was more important, and that was a heart issue, a heart problem that he discerned, a heart problem of greed and covetousness in this man. And so from verses 15 all the way down through verse 21, Jesus instructs his listeners about how to be rich toward God. Instead of taking all of your earthly possessions and building bigger barns, which was a big no-no in God's design for wealth, instead of doing that, Jesus takes that little passage and he says, here's what it means to store up treasure in heaven. Here's what it means to use your wealth for kingdom purposes. Now, as soon as Jesus deals with that heart issue of greed and covetousness by telling them to give their money toward kingdom purposes, inevitably that leads now to another struggle in the human heart. And that is the struggle to worry about whether or not I will have enough if I am supposed to give my possessions away to the poor or to the church or to to missions. What if I run out of money? What if I'm destitute? Now what? And so if you look there from verses 22 to verse 34, Jesus then helps his disciples to understand that they have a father in heaven who will graciously, kindly make sure that their earthly needs are met. They don't need to worry about running out of money and worrying about what they are going to eat or what they're going to wear. God says, look, I sovereignly take care of the ravens I make sure that the flowers are dressed beautifully in the fields. I will be faithful to supply your needs. Okay, so you go from greed and covetousness. He he addresses that. Then he, he addresses what comes next, and that is worry and fear and anxiety. He addresses it. Okay, so once he addresses that and says, I'm going to take care of your needs. You don't have to worry. 
it leads to another struggle in the human heart, and that is, well, great. If God promises to give me all that I need, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to sit back and do nothing, right? There's a temptation that we face, a temptation toward laziness and apathy. So you can see in this passage this progression and addressing of these sinful inclinations. And so now Jesus is going to speak to that last issue, that issue of laziness and apathy. So I want you to follow along as I read, starting in verse 35, I'm going to go down through verse 48, okay? So here's what Jesus says to that. He says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes back and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming. And begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. We'll stop there for this morning. You heard Ryan say it, and we just sung about it in those last several songs. Jesus is coming back. It's a a biblical fact. It's It's a foundational truth in the Christian faith. Jesus is coming back. When Jesus ascended into heaven, there in Acts chapter 1... Uh, the angels said to the disciples there, they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The disciples thought that Jesus was going to come back 
in their lifetimes. Paul, as he was writing his epistles, thought that Jesus would come back in his lifetime. But he didn't, and and he still hasn't. And for 2,000 years, the Lord's followers, including you and I, are awaiting his return. We live in what we call the already and not yet. The new covenant of Jesus Christ was, was inaugurated at his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation. Uh, that's all started, but it's not yet fully realized when Jesus will come back and finish the covenant. So we live in this in-between time. It started, but it's, it's not yet, okay? So there's all these questions that we have. When is Jesus coming back? We've been waiting all this time. When is he coming back? What, what's, what's the timeline of that? What, what does that look like? And, and, and then you start having all these conversations, uh, debates about what that's going to look like. Sometimes those get a little spirited. Sometimes those get a little animated, even among our elders sometimes. Uh, what's it? We don't know all those things, but we can affirm this. Jesus is coming back. Our denomination's statement of faith reads like this. The end of this age and the coming of the glorious future of the kingdom will be marked by the personal return of Jesus Christ. The living saints will be transformed. The dead will be resurrected. The just to eternal glory and bliss in heaven and the unjust to everlasting punishment and torment in hell. Satan, death, and hell will be cast into the lake of fire and the glorious reign of the kingdom of God will be eternally fulfilled. He's coming back. Now, that statement of faith is very broad and it encompasses a lot of different views on how exactly that's going to play out. If there is a rapture, then praise the Lord. You're going to be taken out before anything else bad happens, right? If there's not a rapture, may I suggest that you go witness to the Antichrist and you will be taken out as quickly as anybody else, all right? I don't know what that's all going to look like. If you've already died before Jesus comes back, then you're going to be resurrected from the grave to meet him in the air. I would advise you to be buried in Florida, where we are not buried as deep and have a two-foot advantage (laughs) on all of the northerners. You're going to come out of the grave. You're going to be resurrected, right? And if you are still alive when Jesus comes back, you're a believer, you're going to join with the rest and you're going to live with the Lord forever. What do all those things look like? Well, I don't know for sure. I have some ideas, but the important thing is he's coming back. He's coming back. So what are we to be doing? Until he returns. Well, if you've ever been an employee, uh, you know what it means for the boss to be away, right? When the cat's away, the mice will play, right? You've heard the old saying. Most people take advantage uh, of the time when the boss is away to kind of relax and, and make a slow go of it. Nobody's watching, so why not take it easy? I had a boss in Indiana Uh, once who had a B-I-C policy. Do you know what that is? B-I-C, butt in chair, okay? That was his policy. 
right? He expected you to be at your desk and being productive. Well, with this particular boss, he would go out for breakfast every morning. And so we would usually be at the office before he did. Uh, and he would arrive to the office a little late. And as soon as he pulled in the front of the building, uh, somebody would yell out, boss is here, B-I-C, B-I-C. Everybody <sighs> scatters off to their desk, right? Put your head down, start cranking it out. You see the temptation? Until the boss arrives There might not be a lot of work happening. Well, should that be the Christian's attitude? Uh, Not just in employment, but in general. Until Jesus returns, what should you be doing? Well, let's find out. This little section that I read this morning is broken up into three mini parables, if you want to look at it like that. The, The three mini parables are waiting watching and working okay so that first one we are to be waiting uh, comes in verses 35 to 37 look again at verse 35 stay dressed for action keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks In those days, if a master of the house left to be married, he would be gone for quite some time. There was a whole wedding feast, uh, all the several days of, of a wedding party, before he would return back to his home with his new bride. And when he came home, he expected that when he came up to the door, his servants would be ready to attentively wait for him. They were to be dressed for action. The, the ESV says. Or if you look at the footnote there in ESV, it says, let your loins stay girded. Well, you need to understand a little bit about what the dress code was in those days to, to, to get what Jesus is saying. Back then, they wore long robes, much like you see in Middle Eastern countries today. Uh, but when you were just walking around the house, not much to do, those robes were worn loosely around the waist uh, without a belt. But if you were going to get serious about getting some work done, or if you were getting dressed in order to leave and and, and ready for departure, you would take a belt, you would tie it around your waist, and you would sort of tuck that robe into that belt so that you're ready. You're, you're, You're prepared. There's nothing going to hold you back from your work. And Jesus says, you need to be dressed like that. You need to be ready to go whenever I come back. And further, Jesus says, you need to keep your lamps burning. You don't want to wait until the master knocks on the door with his new bride to go running for the oil and get the lamps going. He's going to be standing out there just waiting, right? You don't want that. You want to be ready at all times so that when you hear the knock on the door, you can open the door, welcome the master and his bride. You've been waiting for him to come. You've been anticipating, joyfully expecting his approach. What's Jesus' point? His point is a spiritual one. You need to always be ready to welcome the true master, Jesus, at his return from the marriage feast of heavenly glory. And when he's coming back, you want to be prepared to move with him. You're ready. You're anticipating Where are you moving to? You're going to move with him to his glory, 
to where he is. We get to be with him forever and ever. That's going to be a glorious day. I can't wait for the Lord to come back. Now, I know that there are some people sitting here who think, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to the Lord's return. I I, I want him to come back, but I kind of hope he waits until I graduate from high school. I kind of hope he waits until I get married. I'd sort of like to have kids, maybe grandkids. You're sort of looking to this future event. If that's you, let me encourage you. Look again at verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he, the master, the master, will dress himself for service and have them, the servants, recline at the table. And he, the master, will serve them, the servants. Wait, what? Wait, 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 what's happening here? Yes, the master will be so pleased that his servants are waiting for him that he reverses the normal roles and he has them seated at the table and he serves them the banquet meal. What an unexpected twist in something extra that God is providing for his people. The reward for God's people is never commonplace. It's always unexpected, and it's magnificent. And I just want to encourage you, if you're, if you're kind of holding out on whether or not you want the, the Lord to come back right now, the joy of being with our master will far outweigh any unaccomplished earthly happiness that you were anticipating. Think about it like this. How many of you have ever come home and you found that your family uh, got carryout from Chick-fil-A and they didn't get you anything. <laughs> Circumstances, they didn't know you were coming, whatever. And you rummage through the mostly empty bags and much to your delight, right there in one of the bags is one giant waffle fry. <laughs> and you take that thing and you just eat it and it's just amazing. You're so excited about that. Listen. The idea of wanting Jesus to delay his coming so that you can enjoy some earthly pleasure like digging through a bag and finding a waffle fry is like, you don't understand, Jesus is standing at the door waiting to take you to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. He wants to take you up to Burn Steakhouse up there in Tampa and you're going to have filet mignon. You're going to have baked potatoes and stuff. You have all this amazing... And you want to fry? Friend, when Jesus returns, you will have no regrets for the things that you weren't able to do here. The Lord's children will experience untold extravagance at the service of the king. That's why Jesus says here, blessed are those servants. Man, they're blessed. Unparalleled joy. The world's pleasure will be distant, easily forgotten in the light of the face of our Savior. So Jesus' servants, what are you, what are you supposed to be doing? Jesus' servants are to be waiting, but we're also to be watching. This is his second mini parable. Look at verse 38. 
If he comes in the second watch or in the third and he finds him awake, bless are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, when Luke was writing this, the second watch, that, that phrase means from 9 p.m. until midnight, which makes the third watch from midnight to 3 a.m. Okay, now, is Jesus talking literally? Is he expecting you to just stay awake all the time, 24-7, just watching? Well, that's an impossibility. And that, that is a stretch on the meaning of what he's saying. Jesus, rather, is saying you should be watching expectantly for him to arrive. Jesus' goal is that we wouldn't become complacent and just get busy with everything else that life offers and forget that we're supposed to be watching for his return. He could come at any moment. And Jesus says, do you need some motivation? Think about that neighbor down the street whose house was broken into and robbed. Wouldn't it have been convenient if that thief had just called ahead and scheduled an appointment to rob that house? Well, of course that would have been convenient, because why? Well, the owner would have made sure that there were police officers standing around everywhere to nab him. In the same way, Christ, the Son of Man, is coming back just as unexpectedly as the thief comes in to break the house. So be ready. Be ready. He's not going to tell you exactly when it is. Just be ready. Watch for him. That begins, by the way with placing your faith in Jesus Christ as your Redeemer and Savior. You can't be ready for a Savior that you don't even know, right? So the first thing is that you should know your sin separates you from a holy God. Your sin demands punishment. Your sin demands separation from a holy God. But this Jesus who's speaking in this passage will later in this book of Luke go to a cross where he will die for your sin. He'll take your punishment and in your place condemned he stood. He rose again on the third day. And now when you come to this Jesus through faith Through repentance, he will forgive you of your sin. And then he includes you in this promise that he's coming back to get you. So when he says, be ready, it begins with a faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it continues throughout our watching and waiting for his return. Be ready, be ready, be ready. Now, Peter seems a little confused here. And so he says, Jesus, I mean, there's a lot of people around. There's the disciples. Are are you talking just to us? Are you talking to everybody? Help me with this. And Jesus never really directly answers Peter's question. Instead, he expands a little more on what faithful servants should be doing. And he goes into now this third mini parable. He says, you need to be waiting need to be watching, but you also need to be working. Working. Look at verse 42. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? 
Here's a master. He's getting ready to leave, go on some long journey, do his thing. And so he goes to one of his most trusted, faithful employees, this manager, and he says to him, here are the keys to the place. Here's the checkbook. I want you to make sure that everything is taken care of. I want you to buy whatever you need to make sure that the other servants are taken care of. I want you to run the place, pay the bills, do all the things that need to be done. I'm trusting you to keep it running. And then he walks out the door. When that master returns, if he finds that manager doing exactly what he asked, then that manager will be blessed. In fact, in verse 44, it says, he will set him over all his possessions. Now, in some ways, I believe that Jesus here is speaking to spiritual leaders. I I think he is addressing the apostles, and today we would have pastors and elders, people that he places in charge over the rest of his flock. And when those leaders faithfully carry out their duties until the Lord returns, they will be blessed for that loyal service. In a broader way, though, this really applies to every believer. Because there's another parable that Jesus tells in which God gives every servant some measure of talents. He gives one ten, he gave another, he gave another one five, he gave one. The issue was not the quantity of talents that he gave anyone, but rather what they did with them. We are to be faithful in using what God has entrusted to us to be a blessing to those around us. And when we are faithful in carrying out those duties, when the Lord returns, guess what? Greater blessings are given to us. Greater rewards. In Luke 22, Jesus said to his little group of disciples, he said, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Faithfulness is rewarded with greater blessing. That's Jesus' point. But what happens when you get complacent? What happens when you get lazy? What about this master who started to kind of do his own thing? Well, look at verse 45. This, this servant says, yeah, boss isn't going to be back in a while. He begins to beat up on the servants that are around him, tells them, do this, do that. He spends his time eating, drinking, getting drunk. He didn't know when the master's coming back. It looks like it's going to be a long time. Might as well enjoy himself. This servant didn't think that the master would be returning anytime soon. And so what did he do? He took all of the resources that the master had entrusted to him to be a blessing to others, and he began using those for his own self-pleasure. Even overindulging to the point of drunkenness and taking advantage of other people, beating them up if they didn't obey him, he became a ruthless and wicked manager. And guess what happened? The master came back when he was not expecting him. And what was his punishment? Jesus says that manager will be cut into pieces and thrown with the unfaithful. Now, 
that phrase, cut into pieces, literally, if you go look at the, the Greek, it means to be cut in two. It could be that Jesus was talking about the severe punishment that comes along with disobeying him, but it also includes the idea of being cut off from the presence or the blessing of God's people, to be cut in two pushed aside. It seems like that's more what he's talking about because if you look at the next verse, it says that he's placed with the unfaithful. He's put away from God's presence. Why? Why was he punished in this way? Because he knew what he was supposed to do and he didn't do it. Look at verse 47. That servant knew his master's will, but he did not get ready or act according to his will. He receives a severe beating. Jesus there is talking about sins of omission, things that he knew he was supposed to do, and he failed to do them. He sinned against the knowledge that he had. This manager knew he was supposed to remain sober, He was supposed to treat the other servants with respect and honor. He failed to do so. He receives a severe beating. But interestingly, Jesus goes on to talk about the servant who commits sins of commission, things that are wrong, even if done out of ignorance. Now, watch this. This is interesting. Look at verse 48. It says, The one who did not know and did what deserved a beating, will receive a light beating. Now this begs the question, why is this servant getting beaten, albeit lighter, if he didn't know the master's will? How is that fair? Well, you must remember something critical. There is no such thing as absolute moral ignorance. There is no such thing as absolute moral ignorance. In Romans 1 verse 20, we read, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Listen, what happens to the innocent man in the jungles of Africa when he dies, having never heard the name of Jesus? He goes to hell. Well, how can you say that? Because there is no such thing as an innocent man. Every human being is without excuse because every human knows that there is a God and in his sin, he chooses to either ignore or to suppress that truth. J.C. Riles says it like this, our very ignorance is part of our sin. We're ignorant because we've been born with the nature of Adam, and in our ignorance, we foolishly reject the very revelation that God gives us of himself. Therefore, we are ignorant and we sin against even the little bit of knowledge that we actually do have. In Romans chapter 2, 
it says, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Friend, we know right from wrong. It's written on our hearts, but the ignorant refuse to follow it. So what Jesus is saying here about these disobedient servants is that some servants disobey knowingly and others unknowingly, but they both disobeyed at least the little of what they knew. So the ones who knew a lot get a severe beating. The ones who sin a little get a lighter beating, but they both suffer punishment. Jesus is making the point. The faithful servant of Jesus will work loyally for him until he returns. The unfaithful servant will disobey him, thinking that he won't come for a long, long time. That servant will be cast out in the end. So Jesus finishes this little parable in verse 48. He says, Everyone to whom much was given of much Of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Friend, you have been given much. You've been given much. You've been born into a free country. You have easy and prolific access to God's word. You have resources to study God's word, to know his will. You have a local church that meets on a regular basis to help you in your walk, to pray with you, to come alongside of you, to walk with you when you're struggling. You have been given much. You'll be held accountable for what you've been given. Let me challenge you. The Lord is returning. That's a statement of biblical fact. He might come before I say amen at the end of this sermon. He might come before you come back tonight for your Valentine's dinner. He might come tomorrow. He might come next year. We simply do not know. But what do we know? His faithful servant should be doing three things. Waiting, watching, and working. Is that you? Or have you become complacent? Have you become lazy in your spiritual walk? Are you living like the Lord is never going to come back? Today's your day to repent and return to a faithful walk with Him. He will graciously, kindly forgive you. He will take you if you ask. And if you need help, you don't know where to start like some of the folks that Steve was talking about. You have no idea where to start. Come talk to me. Come talk to Ryan. Come talk to our elders. We want to help you. We want to walk alongside of you. We want to be ready when the Lord returns. I want you to reach down in front of you. I want you to grab a red hymnal and a black hymnal. You're going to need those in a second. I want you to stand with me. I'm going to close this in prayer. 
And when I'm done praying, you're going to walk those two hymnals out the back. (laughs) You're going to put them in that cart back there, okay? Thank you for playing along with me. Let's, Let's pray. Father God, we know you're coming back. We know you're sending Jesus. We don't know when. We hope it's today. We hope that we get to join you in the air. We get to be with you forever. We get to sit at the banquet table. And, and what you're going to serve us, to you be the glory as we return all of that praise. You're worth it all. We want to be waiting and watching for you. We also want to be working. We don't want to be lazy. We don't want to be, we don't want to be misusing what you've given to us. We, we want to be taking the talents, the gifts, the resources, the skills that you've given to us. We want to be like the wise manager, blessing others, spreading the gospel, discipling those around us, mentoring people. We want to do all these things because we want more and more people to be ready when you send your son to get us. To you be the glory, the honor, and all the praise. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to sing the doxology. Sing with us for just a moment and be dismissed. Praise God.